Good morning, everyone. It's uh, an honor to be here, and it's good to see you. Thank you for taking time to be in church today. There's a myth in the Christian life that many people believe, some of you might believe it, and it's something, it goes something like this. When you become a Christian, God gives you better circumstances. That's not true. There are an awful lot of people who become Christians because what they really need is somebody to get them out of a fix. Or what they really want is somebody to make their circumstances better. And they think that by becoming a Christian, God guarantees that our circumstances will get better. There's no such promise anywhere in the Bible. God doesn't promise to give you better circumstances. But he does promise to give you a better life. And I want to talk to you about that for a few minutes this morning. I want to encourage you to know that in the midst of the darkest and most difficult circumstances, as an individual, or as a family, or perhaps even as a church, you can have a better life. Far too often, particularly the bit of the church that we are part of, can end up promising people things that are not biblical. Come to God and you'll never suffer. That's a lie. The Bible says very clearly, those who follow God will suffer. Come to God and you will be wealthy. That's a lie. The Bible is full of evidences of people who were materially poor, including your Savior, Jesus. Come to God and you'll never face an uncertain time. When, I don't know what my brother's name was that was leading communion, William, uh, was leading communion so beautifully, he said something that was very important. As Christ was dying on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the heart of Christian faith is a God who has been forsaken and therefore understands your sense of forsakenness. There's no other faith. There's no other tradition in the world that believes at the very heart of it the answer to suffering is not a set of questions. It's not a set of explanations. It's not an essay that you read or a book. It's not a journal. It's not a seminar that you go to. Christianity believes that at the, at the very center of the biggest challenge in the world, why do things go wrong? There is a God who suffered what went wrong. Not that the cross was a mistake. I'll come to that in a minute. But at the very center of Christian faith is this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus redeems that sense of forsakenness. He takes it away. He carries it. You as a church family have been through some tough times. You're still trying to work out what happens next. Some of you as individuals have felt the sting of sorrow, of sadness, of uncertainty. I guess there's nobody in this room that has not had to go through a trial of one kind or another. That's because trials are inevitable. Yet, 
When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, and you've heard it quoted twice already this morning, so maybe God has a plan, eh? He said to them, I have discovered that in whatever circumstances I find myself, according to J.B. Phillips, a 1950s translation of the New Testament for school children, here's the way he puts it, I master them, they don't master me. The way you heard it from the NIV, I presume, was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 and following. But if you read it carefully, you need to read the context. Paul is probably writing from a prison cell. He's probably under one of the fiercest and most difficult trials of his life. And what he says to these Philippian believers is, I can be strong or I can be weak. I can be well or I can be ill. I can be rich I can be poor, I can be in plenty, and I can be in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have learned how to master my circumstances rather than to let them master me. I want to encourage you with that this morning. And I want to remind you as an individual follower of Jesus or as a community of people following Jesus that God doesn't let go of his children. He never abandons us. He never walks away from us. The resurrection and the hope that we have through Jesus Christ, having died and risen again, isn't just one of those things that we pull out of a drawer on a bad day. It's not a pep talk. It's not a pick-me-up. C.S. Lewis, who was from not very far from here, once said this, I believe in Christ as I believe in the risen Son. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. Not just because of the resurrection, not just because of who he is, but because by believing in him, I understand everything else. I believe in Christ's resurrection and life, he said, as I believe in the risen son, because through it, I see everything else. One of the things that we need to learn to do as Christians if we're going to live effective Christian lives, not easy lives, that's a different thing. That's not a possible. If we're going to live effective Christian lives, one of the things that we need to learn to do is see everything, every single thing in our lives through the lens of the resurrected Jesus, through the lens of the victorious cross, through the lens of all that we've just sung in that fantastic song. That Christ has paid our debt. He has lifted our guilt. He has removed our separation. And it can never be placed upon us again. And we are brought into a completely different set of circumstances because of what Christ has done. Therefore, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in in life, whatever's happening around us, our spiritual reality, the circumstances of who we are in Christ cannot be changed. They are indefatigable. They are unchangeable. They're unalterable. Nothing can pluck you from the Father's hand. Right. Nothing can remove you from God's purposes. Once born again, you cannot be unborn. Yeah. Once given eternal life, you cannot have that life taken away from you. At the heart of the New Testament's uh, letters written by Paul, is the letter to the Roman Christians. They were a group of people that were facing political upheaval, economic uncertainty, and challenges around how they were living. 
The Christian community in Rome was endangered. All around them, there was a sexual code of conduct which was way worse than the one that you and I live in. There were expectations of um, relationships that could go any which way you wanted, much worse than what you face or I face in modern British society. Much more lapse, much more lax, much more difficult than you have to cope with on a day-by-day basis on the streets of Belfast or in your families. Roman culture was much more polytheistic. There were many more idols. There were far more gods. There were far more economic challenges. It was far harder to be a Christian in Rome than it is in Dundonald. We often say the hardest time to be a Christian is today. That's not true. The hardest time to be a Christian thus far was probably in the first three or four hundred years of the history of the church. And yet it was in those years that the church found its identity and was able to stand strong and confident, so confident that in about 150 AD, a man called Polycarp was trailed into, a, uh, into the Colosseum in Rome. He was 82 years of age. And they said, we're going to have you. We're going to kill you. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. And he was pulled into this um, kangaroo court. And they said to him, um, renounce Christ or die. He said, no. So they beat him. And then they said, renounce Christ or die. And he said, no. So they beat him again. This time with bits of metal tied into bits of leather. An 82-year-old man. And they said, renounce Christ. And he replied, these 82 years have I served him. And he has never abandoned me. How can I now abandon him? So they put him in the skin of a goat covered him in blood and put him into the Colosseum and let the animals loose. Or what about a young woman called Perpetua who was told that she had to renounce Christ or they would kill her and the child that she'd had four weeks before. And she said, I will not renounce Christ. And they said, we will kill you and your child. And she said, I will not renounce Christ. So they put her on a wall and they made her watch as they threw her child into a pack of wild animals. And she sang a hymn of thanks to God, and then they pushed her in. What was it gave them resilience? What was it gave them the sense that nothing could take them out of God's hand? I look around me often, and I see Christians that are very, very, very flaky. The slightest wind, and they think God has abandoned them. As a result, we end up relying on our emotions and relying on circumstances. And if circumstances are good, God is good. If circumstances are bad, God isn't there. That's not true. No matter what your circumstances are, God is there. What gave the perpetuas or the polycarps of this world confidence? You may um, remember a man called Richard Vermbrandt. He was a Romanian pastor. In a book called Tortured for Christ, he talked about being beaten and whipped. See if you could finish this sentence. Here's what he says in his book, um, written at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s. Alone, cold, beaten, and hungry in my cell. Think what the next sentence, next bit of that sentence might be. Alone, cold, beaten, and hungry in my cell, I danced for joy because God never leaves me. 
What's the secret to that kind of faith? What holds you in that kind of way? Paul's letter to the Romans. What he said to these Christians and how he unpacked what it was to be a Christian. We're going to read in a moment from Romans chapter 8 together so I can comment on it. Just three things I want to say to you and then we're done. But I want to set the context. Romans is like a trip through the Himalayas. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul sets out these huge, enormous pictures of salvation. He says in chapter 1 that salvation is a gift from God. And he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is still the power of salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, because through it a righteousness from God is revealed. He goes on to say that there are people that will accept this salvation and people that reject it. At the end of chapter 1, he says there are a whole set of lifestyles that evidence themselves by those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and this invitation to salvation. And he's firm and he's clear and he says, God gives them over. God, in the end, gives every human being their way. Nobody will stand before Christ at the end of their lives and, have to, and God will ha- nobody will have to have an apology offered to them by God. Every single person that has ever lived at the end of time when they come face to face with God let me give you an abbreviated Northern Ireland version of what he will say and I'm not being sacrilegious have it your way the choices you made in your life are the choices you now live with for eternity I'm doing what you want have it your way to those that have said well my way will be to surrender to you he says have it your way To those who say, I do not want, I have not wanted ever to follow you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be near you. I don't want to have a relationship with you. And I don't want your authority in my life. At the end of time, he'll give you your choice. You can't complain at that point if your whole life has been lived saying to God, I'm not interested in you. And he says, well, I'm still interested in you, but have it your way. That's not unfair That's God being God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul continues this story and he helps them to understand what it means to be justified and he begins to explore what happens when Christ dies for us on the cross. He picks it up in chapter 3 and he talks about justification and the power of the cross in our lives. In chapter 4, he points to the example of the, the, the father of Judaism and Christianity, and Abraham, and he uses Abraham as an example. Chapter 5, he's beginning to get a bit more excited. If you read the words carefully, you can hear it coming through. He says, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can hear the temperature going up in Romans 5.1 as he says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, he begins to talk about what that means in his own life. In chapter 6 and 7, he says, do you know, I find myself in this remarkably difficult position. There's stuff that I know that I should do and I don't do it. And there's stuff that I know that I shouldn't do and I do it. And no matter how much I try to convince myself that I should do this and I shouldn't do this, I still end up not doing that and doing that. Anybody identify with that? And then he gets to the end of chapter 7 and he he kind of explodes with a sense of desperation. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. He feels the turmoil of making choices that he knows are wrong. 
Haven't you found that? He says, who will save me from this? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then, in Romans chapter 8, he starts to talk about the impact of this in your life and mine. As we allow all of this dense, heavy theology to transform us, to get a grip of our souls and our spirits, he starts to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that confirms all of this reality, plants it deep into our souls so that it isn't just something that we know here, it's something that we know here. The longest journey in a human experience is about one foot from our heads to our hearts that we might completely get this reality. Imagine for a moment, and I'm going to stop because you don't want to go all the way through Romans, that you're climbing a mountain with Paul as he does these great theological expositions of baptism and justification and faith and salvation and the cross and sin and the power of the Holy Spirit and his promises. By the time you get to Romans chapter 8, it's as if he gets to the very top of this, almost to the top of this mountain. For the next three chapters, he unpacks it. And then in Romans chapter 11, towards the end of it, um, it's as if he gets to the top of the mountain and he looks back at all the things that he's taught and all the things that he's said and all the things he's tried to get them to explain. And he can't contain himself. And he explodes with this eruption of praise. Oh, the riches of the mercy of God. Who can explain it? Good theology doesn't make you fall asleep in a church seat. It makes something in your heart come alive and you want to stand up and sing, Hallelujah. <laughs> when you sing a song like we sung after communion, why does it reach into your soul? It reaches into your soul because you're not just singing about Jesus and his boyfriend, you. That stuff that we so often sing, me and my boyfriend, Jesus. I love Jesus and Jesus loves me and the world's all better because of it. yippity doo da day You're singing truth. And when you sing truth, the truth sets you free. And you sing it whether you feel it or you don't. You sing it whether your head's full of joy or full of heartbreak. You sing it whether your life is going well or going badly. You sing it and declare it. And as you sing it and declare it, God releases something in your heart. And suddenly you find yourself brought into a different place. And you know, to sing out of conviction, to worship out of a decision, to follow God out of a determined choice is the most powerful witness in the world. Where does it come from? I want to take you to just three verses. There are verses that have been misquoted, misused, and abused for thousands of years. Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. If one more person sends me a card after a tough time with Romans 8, 28 on it, and writes on it glibly, God works together all things for those who are, loved, who are called according to his purpose, praying for you, I'm going to find out where they live, bring the card back, and use their mouth as a letterbox. <laughs> we need to read these words carefully and allow them to shape how we think because there is a truth in them that if you allow it to sink into your soul, will liberate you, yes. not just for today, but for the rest of your life. 
If you as a church allow these three simple ideas that I'm about to lodge in your head to sit there permanently, they will liberate you. You'll sit above your circumstances. You will not be controlled and determined by them. It's the secret. It's the heart of all of the New Testament's understanding of victory and following in Christ and trusting him and knowing that he finishes what he starts. Let's read them. Romans chapter 8. Uh, verses 28, 29, and 30. I'm reading from the uh, New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Here's the three things that I want to help you to understand. They're very simple. Write them down. Do you record your services? Are you recording today? Is that a kind of I'm not sure? Are you, are you recording? Then go home and listen to this a couple of times this week. If there's somebody missing from church and you know they're having a hard time, ask them to listen to the things that I'm saying this morning. Not because I'm a good preacher, that's not the point, but because God anoints what I'm about to say to you. It's true. That's what matters. Verse 28 teaches us a very simple thing. The bad can be used for the good. Verse 29 teaches us something very simple. This is about your life. Um, the good can never be taken away. And verse 30, the best is yet to come. Those are the three things I want to talk to you about for a few minutes. The bad can be worked for the good. The good cannot be taken away. And the best is yet to come for your life, for my life, and for the church. The bad can be used for the good. The good cannot be taken away. And the best is yet to come. Verse 28, I want to read it to you, actually, if I can, uh, this little passage from the, the message, because I, I think it's a very powerful paraphrase. Um, it's not a, a paraphrase I use all the time. There are particular parts of it I, I really am not very keen on. But this, I, I want to read to you. Listen slowly uh, to the way Eugene Peterson puts this. I'm going to read from verse 26 um, down to verse 30. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting... God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and helps us to be present before God. Pregnant with hope. He refers to that earlier in the chapter. That's why we can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. There's verse 28. Every detail of our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The sun stands first in the line of humanity God has restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. 
after God made that decision of what his children would be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid base with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. And then Paul says, so what do you think? Or in the NIV, so what then can separate us from the love of God? Verse 28, the good, the bad can be used for the good. In your Bibles, it will say something like, um, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Most English translations put it that way around. It's actually one of the few occasions when I would say that most of our translations in English have got it slightly wrong. The best way to translate those words, if you're translating them from Greek, and I don't do that a lot, the most important Greek word you'll ever know, need to know is kebab. Write that one down. <laughs> um, but um, if you're translating these words from Greek, and uh, to help my congregation, when I preach through a book, I translate it for them, and then I read it to them so that they understand it in South Buckinghamshire language, which is completely different to the way God talks like us, but that's interesting. <laughs> it's this, not we know that in all things God works together for the good, but instead, and it's a subtle difference, but it's important, we know that together, all things work for the good. I am not going to give you a single example from my life or from the world of suffering that has been redeemed. Because there are too many times when what we understand by suffering being redeemed is, well, it all works out in the end. That's a, a cliched, narrow, shallow understanding of what Paul tells them about what God is doing here. There's some stuff that happens in our lives and it's just plain sad. You know, you hear stories of uh, people who lose their sons or their daughters, and as a result, they set up a fund to help other people. And somebody somewhere along the line, 20 or 30 years later, writes, look at all the good that came out of that death. I guarantee you that that mother or that father would have given everything so that that child didn't die. Don't cliche suffering. And for goodness sake, as Pentecostals, don't say that it's not part of your life because you're just living in cloud cuckoo land. Instead, ask yourself, what is it that God says about suffering? And here's what he says. He doesn't give you an answer. There is some stuff that churches go through and it doesn't make sense. And you can look at it and you can say, why did this happen? And there is no answer. Of course, there could be theological answers about sin and pride and fear and anxiety and miscommunication and all of those things. But in the end, it's just plain sad. And if you could do it again, you'd avoid it. And you don't understand it and you probably never will. But that doesn't mean that in the great economy of God, he has abandoned you. Don't look at one single paragraph in your life and let that define your understanding of God and his purposes for you. Look at the book, look at the story, look at the bigger picture. I cannot understand some of the suffering that's happened in my life. I can't make sense of it and I'm not going to try to. I'm going to leave it with God and in the end believe that not in this life but in the moment that I come face to face with the creator God, it will all make sense. 
And I will fully understand how the bits of the jigsaw of my life fit together. Until then, I can't fit them together. And it's not my job to fit them together. I'm not the creator. But nothing is wasted. No suffering is wasted. No sadness is wasted. God can redeem sorrow. He can redeem heartbreak. He can redeem pain. But he didn't come so that you could avoid it. The great lie of many aspects of the Pentecostal church is that God helps you to avoid pain and sorrow. It is not true. He doesn't redeem your, he doesn't come to give you a better set of circumstances. He comes to give you a better life. If he'd come to give us a better set of circumstances, why did Jesus die? Why was Paul shipwrecked and beaten and laughed at and mocked? If he came so that our lives could be easy, why did most of the apostles die suffering sorrowful deaths at the hands of executioners? Why has the church been riddled with sorrow and difficulty? Why does the persecuted church now in the Yemen or in North Korea, your brothers and my brothers, your sisters and my sisters, why do they still live? in uh, containers or in prison camps? Why are they still starving and dying? If God came to stop that, why hasn't he stopped it? That's a valid, legitimate question. But what if he came to ask his people to be a model of what real life looks like in the worst set of circumstances? What if he wept when Lazarus died because he knows that his people will go through sorrow and they carry a message of hope in the midst of it. What if that's what Paul meant when he said, we sorrow not as others who are without hope? What if the way you handle whatever life throws at you becomes a bridge across which other people walk to say, tell me about this faith. What is it about you? How is it that you can live in the darkest and most difficult of days and yet still have joy or hope or purpose or not cave in or not give up? Because God redeems everything in our lives. There is nothing wasted. There is nothing lost. There's nothing that happens helplessly and hopelessly. Hopelessness and Christian faith are oxymorons. God will somehow redeem our sorrow and our suffering and our pain and our sadness. I've been praying for about 10 days now about what to say to you this morning. And I really believe that God has laid this on my heart. And I want to say to you as a church, God can grow you out of what you have gone through. God can make you deeper, more beautiful, more effective in witness. But those friends that you miss, those mistakes that have been made, those heartbreaks that you carry, those longings that you have, don't push them away and pretend that they're not there. Bring them to God as an act of worship if you can't praise him, let your pain be your praise. Let your questions be offered to him as, a, as a, a vocalization of the sorrow and the struggle that you're going through. And I don't want to say this facetiously. I don't want to say it cheaply. And I don't want to say it in an unaccountable way. But hear the word of the Lord. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former and in this place, I will grant peace, says the Lord of hosts. 
Hear that, test it, but hear it as what I believe to be a word from God for Dundonald Elam Church. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. And in this place, I will grant my peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. If you can harness this sense of God being at the center of your life as a community, if you can harness what he is to you, if you can harness his love and his mercy and his compassion and his purposes for you, if you can be humble enough to bring before him your brokenness, vulnerable enough to say to him, God, we love you and we need you and we're dependent on you, then he can lift that up and use it powerfully, not just in this church, but in this aspect of East Belfast and in this great city that I love and in this province that we all love and in this nation, God can do it. He can redeem the bad parts of our lives. That's also true of your private life. What would we do if God didn't use people that had done bad things? Who would have written the New Testament? Who would have been king of Israel? Who would have been the prophets? Which of us sitting here this morning can say, God uses me because I'm so faithful? He looks at me and he sees my righteousness and he says, do you know what? I don't know what I would do without Malcolm Duncan. None of us can do that, can we? We look at God and we say, why would you love me? Why would you use me? Why would you choose me? Why would you call me? Why would you accept me? Why would you, need hold, it why would you hold on to me? Why would you never give up on me? Because he is love and grace and compassion and mercy. And he takes the broken pieces of our lives and makes a mosaic of beauty out of them. He takes the dissonant notes that tumble out of your mouth when you are weeping and laughing and joyful and sad and happy and confused and angry and patient. He takes all of those different notes, imagine them like a set of notes on, a, on, a, on dots, on staves of music. And he sets them all out and he says, I can turn that into the most beautiful symphony. And then he takes yours, Phil, and he takes yours, Campbell, and he takes mine, and he takes yours, and he takes yours, and he takes all of ours. And he says, I can take all of these and make this orchestra sing with hope to the world around it. And the note that you're going through right now, you might not understand, but it has a place in the purpose of God. Life in a minor key gives us depth. Suffering gives us depth. It brings us into a place where we see the world in deeper color. And we recognize that the spirit that empowered Jesus to go through so much empowers us to go through anything for him. He can take the bad and he can make it work for the good. Verse 29, the good cannot be taken away. We read these words. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. You are already part of the most wonderful, vibrant family on earth. Do you know, by the time you go to bed tonight, around the world, about 110,000 people will have become Christians. Well, I guess that's relatively good news. The church has never been bigger than it is at this moment. It's never been clearer. It's never been stronger. It's never been more vibrant. It's never been more alive. It's never been more effective. What about the United Kingdom? 
we're slipping towards apostasy because we're turning our back on the Word of God. Our churches are preaching come and feel better sermons. We're telling people, we may as well be a self-help group. We tell people to come and we'll tell you all the things you want to know so that you can leave with a smile, but your heart is still broken. And the pain in your life and the struggles and the challenge that you're facing, you're facing cannot be mended. But the gospel changes us. And once it has got into us, it cannot be taken away from us. Jesus said this in the gospel of John to his friends, his disciples. He said, I hold you in my hand and my father holds you in his hand. You are doubly secure of those that have come to me. I will lose none. The good cannot be taken away from you. When God made this promise through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me let you into a secret. He meant it. There's nowhere that you can go today that God will not go with you. Now that challenges our Northern Irish spirituality. Because we bring people up to believe that if they do this, God will not be with them. That's a lie. Once God commits to you, he's committed to you. He's never going to walk away from you. He's never going to abandon you. But Malcolm, I've done some terrible things. And do you know what brings the deepest sense of conviction at all? of all? Knowing that when you did the terrible thing, he was there watching. He didn't turn his back. He didn't close his eyes. He didn't pretend that he couldn't see. He was there watching. But he meant it. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13, I will be with you to the very end of the age, Matthew 28. And in Acts chapter one, he says uh, to his disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit, "Um, stay in Jerusalem till you receive my power and um, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and uh, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And lo, I am with you. John Stott, the famous um, English theologian said this, If you take Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1 and the two promises of the presence of God for the Christian, here is what they mean. One says, I will stand with you to the end of time and the other says, I'll stand with you to the end of the earth. So we can go anywhere and he's there. We can go through anything and he's there. Nothing can remove him from us. He stands with us to the end of time and to the ends of the earth. That means he can handle Ballybean, he can handle Rathcool, he can handle Tully Carnot. He can handle the Malone Road. (laughs) He can handle the Craig Antlet Hills, you know. He can handle Kiltraw. He can handle the Golden Mile. He can even handle Bangor Marina, but don't tell anybody I told you that. He never abandons us. The good cannot be taken away from us. You can do what you like to me. You cannot take the presence of God from me. You can say what you like to me. You can't take the presence of God from me. And you can do what you want. And I want you to understand this because there's a theology around this that is really wrong in some people's heads. God will never abandon his gathered people. He might rebuke you. He might ask you to get on your knees. But he never abandons his people. If he abandons his people, we haven't got a leg to stand on. So when you have felt God's absence, think about this. How do you know he was absent? You only feel the absence of something that you have first felt. So in the end, 
Feeling his absence itself becomes a gift because it strengthens in you the awareness of his presence. How do you know something's absence if you've never had it? Those of you that are going through a hard time, you say to your house group leader, or you don't have house groups here, you say to one of your elders or one of the session or one of your friends, I feel as if God has abandoned me. How do you know that? That must mean that there's something that you have experienced that has proven to you his existence. So let the sense of absence itself become a gift of the reminder of his presence. As a church family, when you gather, you might sometimes say, don't feel as if God is here. Well, what does that mean exactly? It means that you can't feel his felt presence. Well, that's possible. Sometimes God withdraws his felt presence from us, but he never withdraws his presence. And while I'm on this wonderful topic, can I encourage you to stop seeking his presence? He hasn't hidden it somewhere. He didn't put it at the bottom of the lagging in a box that you have to dive 500 feet to find and bring up and open in order that everybody else can get it. You are his presence. You are the carriers of his presence. He lives in you. You should be more excited than that. He's not going to say to you, oh, I'm over here, come find me. When you get there, he says, ha, only kidding, I've moved. God's postcode isn't SL99DG. That's where our church is. And God's postcode isn't whatever the postcode is for here. And his zip code isn't Bethel. And his postcode isn't Spring Harvest or New Wine or even Wondrous, but don't tell them I said that. Because <laughs> I'm preaching there on Thursday night and Friday night. So God's postcode is the earth. You carry his presence. The danger is we get into a theology that says we have to find his presence. And actually what we're doing is weakening good biblical theology. Because you're trying to find something that's already there. Anybody ever had a senior moment with spectacles? I wear spectacles. You haven't had a senior moment yet, but you will. This is a, not a word from the Lord. It's just a rather pessimistic realization. One day, can I borrow your glasses? What's your name? Pardon? James. That's a good name. James in uh, Greek means friend. In Hebrew, it means liar. And sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I only know that because my middle name is James. So you wear your glasses like that. You're doing something. You put them up like that. And then you say to your wife or to your colleagues or to your friends, where have I put my glasses? Does anybody know where I've put my glasses? I can't see a thing without my glasses. Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? And somebody has to say to you, they're on your head. And you think, oh, of course, there they are. Oh, yes, I can see you again. Thank you, James. They're quite nice glasses. We do that with the presence of God. I've lost the presence of God. Where have I put him? Where's he gone? And we look here and we look there and we look everywhere. And he's saying, I'm here. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. You're never going to face a situation alone. You're never going to be in a position that is so dark that there's no light in it. Because when you're a Christian, the light's in you. So your work might be very dark, but it's not completely dark because you're there. Your family might be the darkest place on earth for you, but it's not completely dark because you're there. Your street might be the darkest situation. 
Romania might be one of the darkest places that you've ever visited, Andrea. But the light of God is still there because God never abandons his people. God can take the the bad and work it for good. The good cannot be taken away. But here's the exciting bit. That was all by way of introduction. I'm only kidding. (laughs) Verse 30 tells us that the best is yet to come. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise the Lord. Paul writes all of these, and you must have heard this a thousand times, but pretend you've never heard it before. To a group of people in the most difficult set of circumstances, and every single verb is in the past tense. And yet they're not living all of that. But the cross is an event that in and of itself, together with the resurrection, secures everything you'll ever need for salvation. It is outworked into you by the breathing out of the Holy Spirit. I sometimes feel as if I'm not a very good Christian. I sometimes feel as if I'm a bit of a fake as a pastor because it has been known for me to wonder where God is. I don't get up every morning and put my feet out of the bed and say, praise the Lord, another wonderful opportunity to serve Jesus. I can't wait. (laughs) There are days when I get up and think, I cannot face this day. The last couple of years have been horrendously difficult. But this reality gets me out of bed in the morning. God finishes what he starts. Those whom he has already saved, he he has justified. Those he has justified, he will glorify. It's done. It's all in the past tense. In the cross, in the the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, everything you need for salvation is secured. The debt paid. The weight lifted, the division removed, the struggle struck a death blow. Not over, but struck a death blow. The hope planted and never to be uprooted in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All that has happened in Christ becomes personally applied into your life and my life. He leads us into truth. He guides us in righteousness. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. He confirms to us that we are children of the Father. He reminds us of the Word. He glorifies the Father through us. He sends us with a burden and a passion for mission. These are the things that the Spirit does. He grows fruit in our lives so that we become people of peace and love and joy and gentleness and hopefulness and self-control and meekness. He demonstrates gifts to us because it's not about what we can do. It's about what God does through us. He does all all of us in us because he has finished the work for us. It's as if my future reaches back into my present and sometimes God grabs me by the scruff of the neck and he says, I know you don't believe this right now and I know that life is hard for you but I have finished the work so I'm going to drag you into what I have because here's the end of the story. Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. Here's the end of your story. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to hold and guard that which I've committed to him against that day. At the beginning of Philippians, Paul says, he's able to complete in you the good work that he's begun. Oh, have a great Sunday. (laughs) Enjoy your day today. Leave this room and as you leave it, leave it with this deep conviction. God is more committed to you than you are to him. 
He loves you more than you can ever love him. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't abandoned your family. He hasn't abandoned the mission of this church. He hasn't abandoned Donald Elam. God won't do that. He has something powerful and beautiful and wonderful to birth in you and to birth in this congregation. May you know that deep in your knowing and may it shift the way you understand yourselves. So in one sense, I want to encourage you to pick yourselves up, to look each other in the eye and say, God hasn't finished with us yet. What's next? We believe for a better youth work. We believe for a stronger witness. We believe for more people to be brought into the kingdom. We believe in this moment as we're having to work out who we are and where we're going, that God has more for us. And we will place him at the center and we'll stand with arms wide and hearts abandoned and we'll live for the glory of God and for his purposes and for his honor. Amen. God bless you.